This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Welcome to the second Paddock Pass podcast of the year, presented by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. And of course, we're all here waiting for our Fly Racing clothing as well. We put in an order everything from riding gear into casual wear. So we're all going to be looking very sexy for our new video productions that will be popping up on YouTube and our channel throughout 2022. My name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined today by David Emmett and Neil Morrison. Uh, Steve English is on the golf course. So uh, we're trying to work out whether we're going to punish him for, you know, maybe two to three shows uh, because nobody should be uh, out playing golf, especially in this winter weather and on uh, winter greens. Dave, have you got any more kind of comments to make on that subject? Uh, well, apart from the fact, well, two comments. One, when is Steve not playing golf? And two, um, yeah, nobody should be allowed to play golf ever. Yeah, what was the Mark Twain quote? Uh, golf is a good walk ruined. Yeah, exactly. Ne- I mean, it's a good motocross track ruined. That's what it is. True. Yeah, less spent on golf, the better. Neil, you've been uh, busy otherwise. Um, just before, you know, the, the, the calendar and the clock counts down to the first MotoGP test of the season. You've been looking towards getting your motorcycle license, as we've touched on in previous shows. What kind of state are you in? Are you heavily studying away? And, and what exactly are you studying for? Yeah, it's time to make a confession and say that I've not actually got my bike license. And that is something that I want to uh, I want to make right this year. Um, yes, so I've been looking at uh, getting that, basically... I'm not sure how it works really in the UK. I didn't uh, explore that, but I've been, uh, I'm up and running over in Spain and you have to, uh, you essentially have to study for your theory, uh, do your theory, pass your theory. I think that costs about 150 euros to uh, sign up and uh, that basically includes all of your material to study and then you take the exam for that. I think you have the option of fill in once and then you can do it again. Um, and then after that, it's about uh, taking lessons. Now, I think to legally be allowed to go on the road, you have to have two 30-minute uh, or 45-minute uh, classes where you are riding on the road with an instructor. And you have to have two sessions where you're riding on a closed circuit. Um, and I guess that's where you're going in and out of cones and doing brake checks and things like that, brake tests. So, yes, that's how it is. So I'm, I'm basically um, studying, for my, studying for my theory, but let's hope that I can get to a couple of races by bike at some point this year. That would be, that would be a, a sort of a mini dream for fulfilled. I, I mean, uh, well, first of all, going to a motorcycle race on a motorcycle is one of the best things you can do. But secondly, um, that riding a motorcycle is absolutely the best thing you can do. So I'm extremely happy to uh, hear that you're getting your bike license. I do have one question, though. Um, it's a very specifically Barcelona question because you're going to be doing your theory test. But will you be doing it in Spanish or in Catalan? In Spanish, yeah. So apologies Oof. to all Catalan listeners out there. Apologies to you, Adam, as well. I see the, the skull that's currently engulfed no. in your face. No, I'm just thinking much respect for trying to do it in Spanish. I mean, I know a no entry sign is pretty much across the board, but, you know, still it's uh, pretty daunting having to do a theory test in another language. Yeah, yeah. There was an option to do it in English, but uh, the nice lady, uh, whenever I was signing up to do it, uh, she reassured me and said, no, I think you can do it in Spanish. Don't worry. So uh, vamos a ver. Yeah, your your Spanish is very good, Neil. So you should be um, you should be pretty good. I passed my bike test uh, two thousand and four, two thousand and five, I think, and we had to do a hazard perception part of the test, which I think is pretty standard now for 
both the car and the bikes. And that was kind of interesting. I mean, for anybody that hasn't um, experienced this thing, you're basically sitting in front of a large TV monitor and they play you a series of clips. I think it might be 12, something, something more than 10 anyway. And then you have to click a button whenever a hazard starts to develop, such as, uh, you know, you'll have a, a POV camera and there might be a, a small child getting ready to run out in front of you. And you have to click the button within a certain time frame. If you do it too late, then you fail the clip. Um, if you do it too early, then of course you fail. And then, you know, if you just sit there pushing the button, trying to cheat, then you fail as well. So you have to get like a certain, you know, a degree of pass ratio through this test. And that was kind of interesting, I thought, because that's uh, at least something real life. Because when you're out on the bike, you do need to have you know, Dave, yourself, you know, being a grizzled veteran of riding. I mean, I'm sure you were, you know, probably had sort of, I can remember my old man riding, you know, from our residence into the center of London where he worked wearing only a pair of shorts in the, the summer of 76 when I was born. He used to tell me those stories and scare the life out of me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you're, you're, you've been riding across most of the continent, so you've got your own experiences. Yeah, um, I presume the uh, the uh, clicking the button was the moment when you're supposed to uh, accelerate and try and run the boy, uh, run the small child over for extra points. Um, or was that Apologies a game? To I our younger remember. listeners. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, well, I mean, I got my, I passed my test in nineteen in I think January nineteen eighty three. So that is uh, a little while ago. Um, but it was totally different when I did it. Uh, even then, I mean, it, at the time of the UK, then it was you'd get a provisional license and you could ride a 250. Uh, it, Holland had this really bizarre system where you could ride any bike you like with L plates, but you could only ride it within the confines of your own um, uh, a council. So basically within the council boundaries, uh, which was utterly bizarre so people were doing things like buying gold wings and um <laughs> and, and going out and sort of taking that and there's lots of stories of people sort of you know, buying themselves a nice thousand cc bike and um or a cb 750 and then um uh, stay, sitting outside the dealers revving it up putting it into first gear and then looping it immediately um so it was a, it was a completely bizarre uh, system um and i passed first time mainly because uh it was absolutely pouring it down with rain and the this was in the days before intercoms and so the uh, the examiner had to get out of his car every time and come and give me instructions and uh, he could barely see out of his uh, he could barely see out of his car he kept misting up every time he got out so uh, <laughs> i got lucky misting up just as you were looping it dave that is uh, that is extreme luck <laughs> yeah that was yeah. Uh, there there was a bit of a strange rule in spain when i came back and passed the test i'm not sure too sure it's applicable now but if you'd had a driving license for 3 years then you could ride anything up to a 125 without any further test um, which is probably a big reason why you see so many scooters and mopeds on the yep. road uh, in Spain, and especially in this this particular city. Um, you know, in our case, it was useful for my wife, who had been driving for many years but hadn't taken any sort of form of motorcycle training, so she can now ride our one two five little Honda around if she needs to get to work or anywhere else. I, I think it's the same for. Um... Uh, I think it's the same for cars as well, or for in the UK with a car license that you can actually ride sort of something without uh, gears. And then there's the whole complication of these uh, MP3 things, the three wheelers, uh, which over here you can drive with. You can you can ride with a car license, which is um, a cause for concern because it's a it's a completely different beast you know it's not a car you're doing everything different you have to look differently but um anyway as long as you bear in mind that everyone is trying to it or well 
they're not actively trying to kill you. It's just they really don't care whether you live or die. Then uh, that way, uh, that's the way to stay in one piece. Well, anyway, you've heard it here first on the Paddock Pass podcast right at the beginning of 2022. So we'll be happy to announce that Neil will be riding in Moto E at some point in 2024. <laughs> so no pressure, Neil. Just accelerate that rate of learning and all that knowledge in that big fuzzy head of yours, I'm sure, will be translating into your reactions and your, your hazard perception. I can see a YouTube series coming on here, Ad. <laughs> yeah, reality star. Yeah. There we go. Um, enough enough waffling. Let's get on to the subject of the podcast. We had a fantastic one last week where we had Matt Oxley on the show talking about his Valentino Rossi, all his races book. Uh, once again, check out our social media channels to go and grab a copy of that. It's definitely worth it. Um, we'll be del delving into the uh, the literary world as well again soon when we speak to Matt Roberts, hopefully about his uh, work with John Hopkins on his recent sensational um, autobiography. So uh, that'll be another one to focus on. But for this show, we just want to tackle three big questions we'll have ahead of the MotoGP preseason and building into those tests, both in uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. I was going to say Sepang and um, uh, Lombok, but uh, I decided to opt for the countries instead. Guys, the first thing we really want to tackle is Mark Marquez. Um, you know, he gave a press conference, well, HRC gave a press conference last week talking about uh, his return, I mean, to be honest, his inclusion in the press conference was an 11th hour thing. We were expecting only to hear from Paul Espargaro and then the LCR Honda riders of uh, Takanakami and Alex Marquez. But then Mark, you know, after some improvements in his eyesight and his condition, joined the chat. Um, will he seemed, he seemed in good form. You know, he seemed healthy. He seemed like, you know, he's already ridden a motocross bike. He wants to get back on a sport bike and try... What he said was his health and the condition of his vision at high speed on a GP circuit. So I guess we're all waiting for that. But the, it does seem that, you know, HRC could be at full strength for at least the tests and perhaps the first races of the season. Uh, Dave, is, is that kind of the impression you had as well from that chat? Uh, I honestly, he looked the most cheerful I've seen him in a very long time. He looked, you know, cheerful and relaxed. And that was quite a surprise because I was... Um, it was a surprise that he turned up, obviously, but it was also a surprise that he was looking that positive. Uh, all everything we'd heard out of him, well, that's the trouble with the, the the whole Mark Marcus affair. You hear so very little out of it. They they they're very good at keeping things. That inner circle is very good at keeping keeping secrets, um, because even when you talk to people inside Honda, they will tell you, "Look, I've got absolutely no idea about it either." Um, so yes, it was uh, it was certainly interesting to see him that positive, and it does make me think the way that he was talking. Um, that he is going to be back much sooner rather than later. I think uh, I would I would now be before I was sort of like you know fifty fifty whether he would ride this year. Now I think uh, you know I'd be shocked if he doesn't uh, if he doesn't race at the opening round in Qatar. I'd be I wouldn't be surprised if he was at the Sepang test, but then it's possible he won't quite make it. But uh, we'll we'll see soon enough. He did say the the next step was to ride uh, on a track. It was interesting to him to talk about the accident itself. I mean, in Jura crash, he almost described it as a small high side, but he was able to pick up the bike and he continued riding the last two laps of his training session before going home. And then he described having problems with his vision, um, you know, and some of his uh, stability, let's say, uh, in terms of being able to do stuff, spoke with the doctors. The doctors then said, 
Uh, you know, it could be something that goes away in a couple of weeks or it could be much longer. And it ended up being the longer option. I mean, like you said, Dave, to the point where there was speculation coming up about whether he would race into this year, whether he would race again, in fact. Um, I mean, Neil, we're talking about an athlete, you know, certainly in my opinion, is probably the best motorcycle racer we've ever seen. In 2019, I mean, he took 18 podiums from 19 rounds. Um, you know, the statement of that season is, is magnificent. I mean, it's, it's real, real hot form. So, you know, we saw Mark come back last year after, you know, his broken arm. Um, the Honda hadn't had any further development, of course, after the, the engine freeze and whatever else. Um, so it was very much a case of feeling his way back into MotoGP, but now he's almost having to reset again, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Just as he was getting back from the arm injury last year, Winning two races, uh, the second of which was pretty unexpected at Misano. Um, I think at that point you were looking at Mark and thinking, okay, he's, he's properly back now and uh, he's going to be going into this winter um, in very decent form, you know, having three months to sort of repair his arm and, and get back to full strength again. But, um, but you know, obviously the, the eye injury and the diplopia um, that he suffered um, as a consequence of that um, has, has delayed it. Um, but, you know, we are dealing with Mark Marquez, a guy that's had three pre-seasons of wondering whether he'll be okay and fit in time for the pre-season to start. Um, he's used to this by now. This is the fourth year in a row that he's had to deal with this. Um, and as Dave said, um, you know, it was a, a pretty positive front that he put up. Um, I think that was probably a consequence of him uh, last week testing at um, a motocross track near uh, Yeda. And he said that he chose motocross specifically because that is one where you really need your vision, all kind of aspects of your vision to be working um, to basically deal with that environment. And uh, he said it went pretty well. Uh, it sounds like the next test will be obviously trying a road bike on a Grand Prix circuit. Maybe they'll they'll try a day at uh, Montmelo or Portimao or something like they did last year when he was coming back from his arm injury. Um, and he said one of the big obstacles and hurdles to overcome is to see how his eye will react whenever he's sort of physically tired. I think that's uh, another thing that might um, that might uh, be standing in his way, taking part in the preseason testing. Um, but certainly when he was talking about how he was feeling in the first month of the injury, um, he said he would basically stand up from the sofa and for an hour afterwards would be struggling to see properly, feel normal. Um, it seems that uh, to have come from that, what, nearly two months ago, or a month and a half ago to now being able to at least race or sorry to be at least able to ride a motocross bike i think that's you know that's decent progress so um yeah you would say on the back of uh, last week's performance that uh you know he'll be racing yeah if not at the first race then the first part of the season for sure I still think that the um, riding motocross was also a little bit of subterfuge because obviously the last time he came back from his vision problems uh, in 2012, the, the first time he rode was at Alcaraz. But at, the, at Alcaraz, there was a whole bunch of BSB riders there and they were all po you know posting pictures of him on social media and they'd hoped to go there as a as a secret test, you know, so that which no one would find out. Um, but that secrecy lasted all of about 30 seconds um, as soon as he turned up. So I suspect that they wanted, they first wanted to get him on the bike, uh, uh, ride without any pressure whatsoever. And that's obviously much, much easier to achieve at a motocross tracks in Yeida than it is um, at a Grand Prix circuit. I also suspect that the, the, the track where they go to test 
we, um, I mean, the obvious one would be Barcelona. I think it's going to be uh, you know too cold really to be uh, to be riding in in January. So it would be uh, Almeria, Jerez, Cartagena, somewhere further south, somewhere somewhere warmer, maybe Portimao. Um, but it's also going to be away from the, the away from the public glaze. So um, uh, it's going to be interesting to see which one he chooses. Before we go any further, let's um, hear from the man himself. Yeah, of, of course. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm really happy because uh, you know after uh, three months uh, that was quite tricky because uh, you know a uh, vision problem never is easy. But uh, this last month uh, was better and better, and, uh, and and I start to feel better. But uh, but yeah, uh, since I had the, the accident uh, with an off-road bike, with a duro bike uh, specifically, and was uh, was difficult. But uh, since the first time, I just uh, follow follow the, the advice of, uh, of my doctor, the one that uh, he fixed my vision on already on 2011, uh, that is Dr. Sanchez Dalmau. And yeah, I just follow uh, his advice and uh, was like, uh, was a, a very slow process, but uh, we already know uh, when I had the, the injury because it was actually was a nerve that affect straight away to, to the muscle was exactly the same nerve like a 2011 injury and and yeah uh, since that moment was hard because uh, you never know but uh, but this last month especially last uh, last weeks i feel some improvement and uh, this week i have a i had a, a doctor check and and yeah basically my feeling was uh, proof on the on the results of the of the check and and was I was very very happy. He allowed me to start uh, riding a, a bike and I choose a motocross bike because it's the one that uh, that I injured uh, and and is the one that uh, that is is really demanding. Uh, you need to be very precise. You need to 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 you know is some jumps and uh, some uphills, downhills, and uh, you need completely all the visions. So, so yeah, uh, the, the result obviously was very positive. And now just, uh, I'm looking forward for the next step that uh, all the reps on the team is uh, trying to organize a, a test with a, with a CBR uh, thousand or maybe the, the one that, uh, that I write uh, last year already with the arm, that is the, the RCV. And, and yeah, let's see. Let's see if we can organize soon and uh, and try in a in a GP circuit. So you know, Mark seems to be on his way back, but you know, we saw in two thousand and twenty-one. You know, he managed still four podiums while dealing with the fallout or the recuperation, I should say, from his shoulder, as well as a Honda that wasn't terribly receptive in terms of rear grip. I and mean, when we saw Mark amongst the other Honda riders have a couple of scary accidents, I mean, Harass probably being the worst. What about his competitiveness, guys? I mean, do we think he can return to the kind of form that we, we saw in 2019? He's 28 years old now, um, but we're also talking about a superlative racer who, you know, for 10 years didn't drop out of the top three in, in a world championship standing. So uh, do we think he's going to be the Mark Marquez of old or do we think somebody like Paulo Spargaro, who was also on the same conference talking about how he's changing his 
his winter training techniques and his approach, um, maybe as you know, knowing that Mark's coming back and that's really the yardstick he has to measure himself by. Um, you know, is, is somebody else really going to you know pop up and be the, the number one top dog at, at Honda? Well, I think that, um, or the impression I got from from what he was saying is that he is going to be you know, much fitter. His, he was saying, you know, his arm was uh, better, his shoulder was better. Um, if his eyes are as fixed as he appears to think they are, then it looks like he is going to be, you know, much stronger than he was last year. He's going to be able to race uh, properly. So th- that's going to be... I mean, that's got to be worrying for, for, for everyone else because he's going to be really, really competitive. The second question is they're changing the Honda. They're, they're, they've changed the balance of the Honda to give it more rear grip. Um, how that affects corner entry, because I remember at, at Jerez, they were basically saying, you know, they had to sacrifice a bit of corner entry uh, for to, to, gain, um, rear, uh, to gain rear grip. That was the problem with the old bike. The old, the old bike was very much developed around what Mark wanted, which was to be able to beat the other uh, the other bikes, especially the Ducatis, on uh, on braking. That was where he was making up all of his time. Um, he was sacrificing, or he was sacrificing a little bit of um, a corner exit uh, because he could make up for it. Um, he had uh, all of the Honda riders will say that the, the, the Honda has got no rear grip. Um, it you know the, the, it just wants to spin whenever you open open the throttle. Uh, Paul Espargaro was very interesting about um, about Mark's throttle control, saying you know the, the way that he can uh, manage the throttle and pick the bike up and get drive out of the corner was where he was making the difference. That was what was allowing him to sort of stay with the Ducatis, and then he could actually attack the Ducatis using the brakes, which is why he wanted everything on the front end. Now, if they take something away from the front end and get better acceleration, it'll be easier to, for him for him and for everyone to stay with the Ducatis. But if he loses that weapon of of being able to wait until later and then break then it gets really 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 interesting he'll he will have to adapt his style but you know he's he should be able to i mean he's pure he's pure class really isn't he i mean he has the form uh he has the experience uh we know that if he's fit and he's happy then he's going to be winning races but neil Mark Marquez didn't have a preseason in 2021. He missed the first rounds of the season. Will he have enough time, do you think, in Sepang and also Mandalika? And, you know, again, rediscovering perhaps a little bit of the of the asphalt and the state of the traction at Qatar. Um, you know, do you think we could find a slightly different kind of athlete, maybe one that's more cautious, uh, one that's a little bit more strategic uh, rather than the kind of usual barreling ball of energy that we see, that we become accustomed to? <laughs> I mean, I think it depends what uh, just how good this this new Honda is. Um, you would have thought Mark coming back from his uh, his, his career threatening arm injury uh, last year would have led to a more cautious Mark, but the bike was in a real state when he came back in Portugal, and it was only one race in when he had that massive massive crash at Jerez, where he was thrown into the the tire wall at turn seven, uh, well over a hundred miles an hour, and then the following day he crashed at uh, turn four. I think it was a warm-up and had a you know a big crash going right the way to the barriers there. So I don't think you ever get a mark that is uh, truly cautious. Um, but uh, you know it depends on the bike. If he comes back and if he comes back and the bike is well sorted, um, you know maybe he feels that he he won't need to 
to go out and, and really push to to get results in the first couple of races. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so much depends on so much depends on the condition of his arm. Depends on the condition of his eye. Also, another thought is is you know. The eye injury is obviously a horrible one. It's not the second time in his career that he's had this injury. The thought of banging his head again, will that be something that plays on his mind? You know, another sort of, it's, it's not like a fairly innocuous crash that, that caused this recent eye injury. Um, he said he, he, he suffered that when he was riding a, at a local circuit on his enduro bike. Um, but you think of some of the crashes he had last year that I mentioned that one at Jerez that turned seven. The massive Friday crash at Aston. I mean, those were huge crashes with fairly substantial impacts to his head as well. And you sort of wonder like that, you know, will that just uh, make him think twice about um, about doing something in uh, in a certain corner? Um, but again, this is this is Mark, and uh, I think he's it's just in his DNA that he will throw caution to the wind. Uh, yeah, I mean, Magello 2013 says no, um, he'll just keep on going. Uh, he, there's, there, again, after those crashes, there was no sign of him taking it easy. There was no sign of him backing off. Uh, he forces himself. Uh, uh, again, one of the interesting things he said about the, about wanting to ride a motocross bike was, I crashed on a motocross bike, so I want to be riding a motocross bike to get back on the bike to, overcur- to overcome his fear. And I think he... I think he almost relishes the battle with his own fears. And also, let's not forget, um, you know, he wasn't particularly, maybe he was worried, but outwardly there was no kind of concerns about his shoulders or, you know, the the you know the right arm that he badly broke in Jerez last season in those crashes. Two seasons um, ago. Two seasons ago, sorry, yes. <laughs> Jerez, Jerez confusion. But, um, you know, also one other thing to consider is that Mark has that stability of the same team, the same crew chief, the same environment. I mean, it's relatively easy for him to slip back into an environment where he is going to be comfortable. And like Dave says, and as you pointed out as well, Neil, if the Honda is um, receptive to, you know, uh, a little bit more leeway in terms of the possibilities the riders can enact around the circuit and on a fast lap, then he's going to be at pace straight away. Yeah, although we are looking at a, a, another very short preseason, not as short as last season. Um, but I think we've got, what, two days in Sepang, then three days in Indonesia before the season kicks off in Qatar. I think last year we had, uh, for the guys that weren't rookies, we had five days. But one of those days was basically a non-event because winds were so high. Um, so, yeah, it's not exactly like we have a, a massive amount of, of testing to get through. It's not like, you know, four or five years ago where we had three days uh, at three different tracks before the season got underway. Um, this is quite different, although saying that at least we will be going to two different tracks that aren't Qatar, and Qatar can obviously be a bit of a misnomer. Um, it's, it's quite dangerous uh, to base your season's predictions on um, on what happens at a Qatar test, as we've seen recently in uh, recent years. The other, I mean, the, the point about um, the stability of Marquez's situation is a very, very interesting one. What's even more uh, stable there is obviously his contract. He has zero concerns about his about his contract he knows that um he will be offered a contract for as long as he as long as he wants to uh, and if honda don't want him then there's a million other factories who do so it's j- like like he doesn't have to worry about that side of things so he can just focus on uh you know all the other things you know the just the really really important things he doesn't have to, his situation is so strong that all he has to worry about is himself and his riding and the bike yeah, and I think there's only two other guys on the MotoGP grid that are in that situation. I think it's Brad Binder and Franco Morbidelli that have contracts for 23 uh, already. 
um, the rest of the, the rest of the grid are basically um, fighting for their next seat and yep. their next contract. So, but even beyond that, uh, you know, like Brad Binder, yes, he's okay until twenty twenty four, but we still don't know. You know, what is Brad Binder? How good is he? We know he's good, but how good is he? Mark Marquez, this absolutely beyond question that he can ask. Uh, you know, he can name his price, he can name his conditions. Uh, he gets whatever he, anyone will give him, whatever he wants. And just one other thing that I find quite interesting, he was saying that um, basically him and his team, I guess his, uh, his physio as well, uh, they need to just find, they need just to understand a better way to work during the season with his arm and his shoulder that he injured back in 2020. Because last year, I think there were some moments where you thought, oh, okay, it seems that, okay, he's won the race in Germany, for example. Um, and then he goes into the summer break and surely after that period of resting and recuperation, he'll come back even stronger. But I think it was uh, it was far from linear and he was, um, he was finding that his condition was almost um, varying um, by the weekend. Um, so he said that there's a, I need to kind of try and understand the best way to, to work with his shoulder um, because he said there were just some weekends where he would have irritations, then pain, and then obviously everything becomes a bit more difficult. So um, it will be interesting to see how they uh, how they manage to do that. But at least he has had another kind of uh, pre-season, um, a whole winter to sort of uh, rest that shoulder and, um, and try and get that back up to 100%. Yeah, it's a good point about the contract situation, Neil, because, I mean, Mark, you could say, may take a slightly more relaxed or perhaps less pressured approach to the beginning of the year because, Dave, you wrote a really good uh, silly season story on your website, motormatters.com. Uh, anybody hasn't read it, go and check it out straight away. Uh, you know, there, there are going to be a, more than a handful of riders and teams, you know, keeping an eye on the the attitude, the physical and the mental approaches of riders in the first few races of this season, um, you know, because there will be talks going on. There will be, you know, paper slid across tables to try and tempt riders and shake things up. And, you know, maybe with the exception of Ducati, you could say, who have already loaded their rider stable quite thoroughly in terms of experience and youth. Um, there is a, a good potential for swap around. And if Mark, like you say, is sitting on a lucrative contract for a couple of years, then, you know, he can just watch all that fuss go on next to him and, and crack on with the job. But let's um, let's take a quick break here on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back, we've got two more big questions that we're looking forward to or we're debating about the 2022 preseason. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Planet Pass podcast. We're going to chew over another two questions in the second half of the show. The first one, Ducati. Constructors, world champions for the last two seasons. Um, very definitely the uh, the manufacturer, the team, the motorcycle, they were at force in the second half of the 21 season. Guys, is it time for the Italians to emerge right at the top of the standings again for the first time since 2007 and, and grasp what it seems hard to believe, just their second riders championship in the category? Uh, you know, do we bank on riders? Do we bank on the sheer weight of presence? Or do we bank on the fact that the Desmo Sedici is suddenly the bike that everybody wants to have? Dave? It's the best bike on the grid. Uh, I mean, beyond question, it does everything. Um, it does some things better than others, but it is much faster. It is um, quicker coming out of corners. It breaks reasonably well, especially with 
this new generation of riders, the, the riders like Pekka Benyaya, um, who learned to use the rear brake to stop the bike much better. Um, it, 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 yeah, I mean, they are they are the bike to beat. However, if Mark Marcus is really fit, um, then he automatically starts the uh, the 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 season as the as the man to beat um and it then becomes can can Banyaya, can jorge martin uh who knows maybe even anea bastianini what can they do to to get in his way to beat him uh, and can they can they win the championship and obviously we'll talk about it later but you know what about fabio quartararo and the yamaha no, it's, um, you know, there's going to be almost, well, there's a third of the grid is going to be on Bologna-built technology in 2022. We keep hearing about those eight bikes. Um, can you just outline the eight riders for us again? And, you know, let's let's talk a bit about Paco Bagnaia, a Moto2 world champion. He knows how to build a, a championship winning campaign. Does he really have uh, the chops or the, the mentality to go and, and, you know, beat the likes of Quateraro and Marquez? I would say this time last year, I, w- I would have said no. But this year, uh, I think Banyaya is well-placed. He has to go into the year. Um, as we stand right now before preseason starts, probably is the favourite because we don't quite know exactly how well Mark is going to be when he gets back on the bike. We still have a lot of question marks about the Honda, but we know Ducati is just in, in fan shape. Um, I think Banyaya showed at the end of last year that uh, you know he was, he was fast everywhere and he has a, a very impressive manner of managing races he beat mark marquez in a straight up fight in aragon um he resisted fabio quattararo pressure at the first Mizano race okay he crashed out of the second one but slightly strange circumstances there with uh, the tires and the, the the conditions that we had over the weekend and you know he was going to tracks that ducati have had a horrible record at at the past in the past um and he's still been pretty strong like valencia i mean yeah, there were top three there, but you know, Banyaya was still the best Ducati of the of the lot. So, I think he's in a he's in a fantastic place. Um, maybe this is uh, he, he won't be in a better situation in terms of uh, where Ducati is and where the likes of Quartararo and Mir are um, with their respective manufacturers. And Marquez, there's still one or two question marks over. So, I think it's a great chance for him. And just looking at the, the Ducati numbers, I mean, you mentioned eight bikes there. Ad obviously. You know, uh, Banyaya and Miller showed that they have waste winning uh, pedigree last year. Uh, you've got Zarco and Martin in the Pramac squad. I think Martin is going to be one to watch this year. Is he a championship challenger? Maybe it's a bit too early for that, but I think he could be fighting for race wins and regular podiums. Uh, you look at the Grassini squad, the new Grassini MotoGP team, they've split uh, from Aprilia after a, a association dating back to 2015. Um, they now have a satellite Ducati team with Anaya Bastianini, who was super strong uh, in the, the last half of uh, 2021. He'll be partnered with uh, De Gian Antonio, a rookie. Maybe we won't expect too much from him too soon. And then you look at the VR46 boys, and they've got uh, Luca Marini, who in flashes showed that uh, he was getting the hang of MotoGP at the end of his rookie year last year, Marco Bezzecchi alongside him. So I think of, of the eight Ducati bikes, you could probably look at five riders there, uh, the two factory guys, the two Pramac guys, and Bastianini as, you know, regular top eight threats, really. Um, and that's that's going to be a real obstacle for the likes of Quartararo and Mir, who will just be on slower bikes and depend on kind of clear air to make their lap time. Dave, a couple of things. I mean, if Peko Bagnaya has the same kind of, uh, I wouldn't say smug, uh, level of confidence after the test in he, he was sporting in Hareth. 
um, you know, the, it seems MotoGP could be in a bit of trouble or certainly his rivals because, you know, having tested the latest version of the Desmos Adichie, um, and Gigi Delingi is uh, kind of incessantly refined creation. Um, you know, the, the, like you say, the bike is the best one on the grid. I think, you know, one of the technical innovations we could look forward to uh, from Ducati is that the automated uh, start device. I think the, the whole system has been now been moved towards the, the, lower, the front wheel of the motorcycle. Um, you know, for the BDI, keep an eye out on that in Sepang and also in Mandalika. Um, but Dave, it's, it's I mean... Neil was outlining the rider lineup there quite consistently, but for me, I think you know if you look at Peko Bagnaia, and it's hard to find another rider. You'd say, "Yep, that's going to be a world championship contender. That's world championship potential." Johan Zarco still has to win a race. Jorge Martin is only in his second year of learning, and I think if you go by the Fabio Quartararo yardstick, there he will probably have some doubts or some um, some issues to deal with. Uh, you know, to to make that push up to the the upper sphere of performance. Um, you know, Jack Miller, was, you know, inconsistency has been his biggest bugbear. Um, and like Neil said, you know, you've got the, the rest of the riders are pretty much learning their or getting their foot in MotoGP. So, I mean, maybe the factory has to load most of the pressure on Bagnaia as the guy who's ended 2021 so hot is a former world champion and can do it. But otherwise, it's, it's not like you would perhaps look at the whole lineup and think, yeah, we've got three or four guys who can win this title. Are you dissing the Martinator? Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the Mahindra Martinator. Uh, I really think that uh, Jorge Martin has the chops. He has the uh, – his weakness is a penchant for inju- uh, injury. He, he likes to fall off he's and made of glass, Dave. He's made of glass. I mean, as soon as he falls off, he's going to break something and they'll miss a couple of races. Well, yeah, as long as he doesn't fall off, then I think he <laughs> is a, a, a – a, he, he was so impressive in the second half of last year. Um, he was so impressive as a rookie. Uh, he did everything you need to do as a rookie to be a champion, which is, you know, get on the bike and win races, win races right off the bat. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's a real contender. Um, I, I, you know, like uh, Jean Zarco, I'm not sure where Zarco is. I don't think Zarco is a very – he's developing into a very solid racer, but he doesn't look like he's going to be okay, capable of winning a champion uh, a championship. I think um, uh, Jack Miller has a few refinements to make before he can do it because he keeps making – mistakes at crucial points um but he's you know he has matured a lot in the past what maybe two or three years so he's made a lot of progress i'm really interested to see what bastianini can do because i think bastianini is the is the biggest sort of mystery bastianini i think could be the complete package um but he did well he's on a gp21 i think not on the new bike he's going to be on a uh, on a well looked after version of uh, of this year so yeah and the thing is having martin having banyaya or uh, having yeah banyaya having uh, bastianini uh, having Zarko who can get in the mix sometimes um these are riders who are going to be able to make the – confuse the championship, you know, get in the way, take points off of the other contenders. Uh, I mean, if you think about the – if you think about 2019 when it was uh, Dovichioso versus uh, Marquez, um, Marquez you know, he only ever finished first, first or second. 
And I think that there are, I think that is going to be impossible to re repeat just because of the depth of field. There are so many good riders. You're going to see, you know, Suzuki's on the uh, on the podium. You're going to see Ducati's on the podium. You're going to see Yamaha's on the podium. Um, so again, it's going to be a bit like last year. The, 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 the champion is going to be the rider who makes the fewest mistakes, who has, who, uh, who limits the damage on his bad days. Um, so that to me is is going to be the key to 2022 uh but because ducati have got such a strong lineup i think they're going to be taking more points off of other riders and other manufacturers than off of Pekka Benya. So I think Pekka Benya is ideally placed. It's certainly the best opportunity he's had so far of, of winning a MotoGP title. I think a thing that stands in Martin's favour is that you're basically, you're expecting him to be in the front row pretty much every weekend. Um, and we know that Ducati starts well, uh, is pretty good at the start of races with a lot of top speed, is difficult to pass. Um, so, you know, in that respect... Even on his bad tracks, Martin is more than likely going to be figuring up towards the front, at least at the start of races. Um, and we have to remember that a lot of those performances that impressed us so much in the second half of last year came after his big Portimao crash. And he was still feeling the after effects of that crash right up until November. So, um, you know, uh, yes, he's made a glass, but boy, he knows how to ride whenever his glassy bones are a little less than uh, fully healed together. So, um, you know, I think that that's something you have to, you have to consider. But you know what they say about boxers with glass jaws, Neil? Beware. But, you know, I mean, the Ducati bikes are going to be taking points of other riders, but potentially also points off themselves. I mean, do we think that the factory are going to be that desperate to land, you know, land the big title that team orders could actually end up coming into play quite early in the season? I mean, they might prioritize Martin and, and Bagnaya and then start saying to Zarco, back him up. Uh, it's, you know, you're in a, 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 how much clout did Ducati have with those four teams to be able to issue that kind of decree? I think they have, I mean, they have a lot of, uh, a lot of clout with Pramac because, uh, you know, Pramac is the, is the junior factory team. Um, and they're going to be the primary, they're, they're going to be the primary teams. I think also Ducati are going to start looking towards 2023 and who they, uh, who they want on their factory bikes. Obviously, if Banyaya gets the sort of starts to 2022, uh, in the way that he ended 2021, then uh, he's going to be the favourite to to keep his job. It seems. I mean, it would be. It seems extremely unlikely that he loses that, that he loses his seat. Uh, you would expect them to move Martin up to the, to the factory team. Um, they might start having a quiet word with Jack Miller, but Jack Miller showed last year as well that he knew exactly what his responsibilities was. He was not going to be. Uh, it's not that he was going to, you know, let Pekka Banyaya win, but he was not going to take any risks with Pekka when Pekka Banyaya was around. Uh, so he will be respectful. I think Juan Zarco is the same. He's not going to be. He's not going to be stupid. He's not going to make stupid mistakes. Um, he is going to uh, be aware of his role, and uh, he's also going to be aware that um, he is not Ducati's. Uh, you know, he's not the. Not Ducati's appointed person, uh, appointed rider to win the championship. Um, but the other thing is, you know, with Ducati, that if they, if there's a chance, they, they will give you a chance to win. They will give you your, your opportunity when it's not, um, when it's sort of convenient. So if, uh, 
Zarco turns up at Le Mans and uh, uh, Bagnaia is having a bit of a mare, they'll be more than happy to uh, uh, throw everything behind Zarco to make sure that uh, it, at least he... Uh, has a chance at winning and taking uh, taking points away from uh, from whoever happens to be challenging. So it does give you. It, it, it's not so much that they're going to be issuing uh, team orders. It's just that they're going to have a quiet word and say, you know, look, don't get in each other's way. Try not to try not to hurt each other. Try to help each other. And if you help each other, then uh, we'll make sure that we continue to give you your best chance of actually succe- uh, succeeding when it's possible. I like Bagnaia's chances. I think Miller's still a little bit mysterious. Uh, what he could turn up with 2022 is still, you know, unknown. Johan Zarco, I mean, I think if you, yeah, I mean, let's not, Forget the fact that in 2021, in the early stages, he's had the consistency. He was leading the championship. People were talking about him as a title winner. You know, if he can, can try and elongate that across the campaign, then he's got a chance. But he's more going to be about racking up the points, which, of course, worked for Juan Mir, let's not forget, um, in term, instead of producing the the spectacular. But if Jorge Martin wins the championship, I will come on the next podcast, especially in our video show, wearing a Martinator T-shirt and a cap. <laughs> And I will wear it with, uh, you know, pride for the duration of the podcast, as long as it's less than 20 minutes long. But you're Um, supposed to do something out of the ordinary, if that happens, Ed. And (laughs) what you just described is not something that's out of the ordinary. That's an ordinary Saturday for for, for Ed, isn't it? Right. I promise then I'll reveal my my intimate Martinator tattoo to the (laughs) webcam. Um, There we go. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Guys, let's move on to our last uh, big kind of question we've got running into the MotoGP season. Uh, the world champion. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of momentum uh, in social media, forums, uh, media talk about Fabio Quadraro's, let's say, strength or potential or chances of, of being world champion again two in a row. Um, we've all acknowledged how kind of impressive his season was, particularly with everything going on around him in 2021. But, you know, the way that the season kind of ended on a little bit of a damp note, uh, the way that Quasarara was making some kind of uh, reserved, we can say, requests to Yamaha and his, his last media debriefs about needing more speed. Um, Yamaha had a great season, of course. Quattro posted 10 podiums, five of those victories. Um, the only other rider to get on the box, I believe, and get a trophy was his teammate who departed mid-season. Um, somewhat controversial circumstances. Uh, so compared to the previous year where Yamaha looked actually pretty impressive, um, aside from their technical issues with Franco Morbidelli chucking a few um, pieces of silverware into the box. Um, 2021 was a little bit of, like Neil used the word earlier, misnomer, wasn't it? Um, you know, I had a very impressive Frenchman, but in terms of uh, other performance for the factory, it was very kind of hit and miss and very unstable. So do we think that Yamaha is going to be a bit of a powerhouse this year or w- will it be a, a case where Quartararo is going to be up against it? 
I think uh, I don't think they're going to be a powerhouse. No, um, I do think Fabio is going to be up against it, but I wouldn't be writing them off at this stage. Certainly, would not be writing them off. Um, I think it's going to be interesting. You look at the you look at the the kind of the factory squads in MotoGP this year. I think you could uh, you could argue that Yamaha is the strongest lineup if Franco Morbidelli is fully recovered from his uh, knee injury that kept him out of three or four races last year. Uh, Morbidelli showed in 2020 what he could do on a year old bike. Uh, with really, really limited engines. Um, I mean, he was sensational. He was arguably the most impressive guy in 2020. Um, and now he has the, the factory seat um, alongside Quattararo. Um, Yamaha knows that they have to work on this speed deficit, but they've known that for many years, and that has not always uh, led to them um, resolving the issue. Um I don't think it's going to be easy. I think I wouldn't put Fabio as a, as a favourite, but on the basis of what we saw last year, um, I think you have to have him at least as one of like the two or three favourites. Uh, you know, if, if if I was to you know sort of reel them off at the moment, I would say you know Banyaya, Fabio, Mark. If if, if Mark is back at the first race, um, you know Fabio did have a bit of a slump after he won the championship in the final two races last year, but. Before that, he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He was the best guy in the world. And there were many, many races where he was riding against the odds. The odds were stacked against him, and he still found a way to be up there fighting at the front. So, um, you know, I kind of feel like as long as Yamaha doesn't make the sort of 2020 mistake and deprives him of some front-end feel, if he has a front-end that he feels comfortable with, he'll be up there, even if the Yamaha is outgunned in the straights. I think he'll be... You know, maybe not be winning loads of races, maybe won't be winning the championship, but he'll be he'll certainly be a contender. Dave, do you think, you know, if Fabio Quasaro is one of the slowest through the speed traps in Sepang in a couple of weeks, do you think there will be a, a degree of concern and panic? Or will Yamaha just say, listen, we've had consistently the best or one of the most competitive packages on the track for the last couple of years? We're we're not stressing out at this point. Uh, Yamaha well, uh, Fabio Quasaro is learning the Yamaha lesson, which is that um Yamaha think speed is good, uh, but they're not that fussed about it. They do it, – it's not what they focus on. You know, like there's only one straight. I, I can't remember who – I think it might have been Kenny Roberts or someone like that who said something like, you know, there's only one straight and 13 corners. Um, and last year, Fabio Quartararo had a, had a big speed deficit to the, the Ducatis and still won the championship. Um, he was making his speed up two places. First of all, corner exit. The Yamaha had really, really good grip uh, on, on uh, and uh, uh, drive exit. So, he, he, sorry, drive exit, exit drive. Was really good coming out of corners. So they were accelerating quickly. And sure, sort of a long way down the straight, the Ducatis were catching them, but there weren't really all that many tracks where the Ducatis actually get a chance to get to get into their stride and get past them. And the other thing that um, Fabio did so well was corner entry. He was braking so hard. He was so good. Uh, I mean, like before we went to Austria, everyone was all oh, right. This is this is where it all falls apart for um, uh, for for Fabio and, and the Yamahas. Because they're going to get slaughtered on speed down the straight. And yet, Quattararo, well, while it was dry, Quattararo looked absolutely fantastic. He was really, really strong. And he was also exceptionally strong on braking. You could see how he was using the rear of the bike to stop it much later than everyone else. Um, and 
enter corners and make up all, any ground that he lost on the straight on top speed. He was easily making up on corner entry. So, yeah, yes, of course, they're going to be worried or there's going to be concern about top speed. The riders are going to be very upset about it. The engineers are going to be less upset about it. And then you look at the lap times and the MRs are going to be sort of there or there uh, thereabouts. But the thing is, the straights, Top speed, it's free It's free time. It's free lap time. It's not time that you as a rider have to be uh, have to be able to, to, to make up. And that's why riders like it. And that's why th- th- they're always, you know, asking for more. Like you say, Dave, and like Neil pointed out, front end field was everything for Quasarero's title winning campaign. So you, you're going to be hoping that Yamaha haven't sacrificed some of that in the pursuit of speed, um, as Neil rightly pointed out. But what about something that could somewhat level the field or throw manufacturers plans into you know disarray and that being the michelin tire allocation um you know whether the the tires that come from the french really fit together we saw it classically with ktm last season where you know they just couldn't find a solution um that was somewhat subverting their expectations from a really impressive 2020 season um that's something else you know you think that engineers are potentially holding their breath about when it comes to those crucial couple of tents because Quasarara was worried at the end of, t- of last year because Bagnaia was that impressive across such a range of, like Neil said, non-typical Ducati tracks that, uh, you know, that, that minor, minor, insignificant, almost technical detail that makes a difference on the lap times was suddenly so crucial. I don't think the the allocation is going to change that much this year. The next big step is obviously the the new front tire, uh, which, as I understand it, uh, Michelin will be looking to introduce in twenty twenty three. That's going to change things very very different. Uh, you know, it's going to change things a lot because it's it's going to be completely different. Um, it's going to be sort of more stiff and more stable and give more support in braking. So that's going to change things. Uh, that's going to change things a lot. Um, I don't think there's going to be as much effect because there was a, a sort of a, a reasonably sizable change for uh, 2021 with the construction of the rear that that Michelin went over to this sort of stronger rear uh, uh, rear casing. Uh, they are sort of they've got this casing working. They're going to be playing around with um, uh, with uh, compounds rather than with constructions. So I, I don't think it's going to be as much of a factor. So everyone is going to have a, a much better idea of what's going on with the tyre. I don't think it's going to be the wild cover is this year, but I think in 2023, it's going to be, there's going to be a huge, huge change. Neil, what's your feelings on Quattararo being, uh, you know, a defending world champion and, and taking the title again? Do, do you like it? I mean, do you see him as the top guy or do you have reservations? Um, it's an interesting question. Obviously, he hasn't really been in this situation world championship level. He was a reigning champion back in the Spanish championship and he, he basically cleaned up in 2014, uh, his second championship year. Um, but then he was in the best team on the best bike. And, uh, you know, when you look at the guys he was fighting, it's clear that, uh, he's the one that's gone on to the, the greatest things by, by some distance. You look at Fabio's recent career and there has been these kind of marked, uh, ups and downs, peaks and troughs um, from 2019 being, you know, the surprise package to 2020 and 2021 going back up again. Um, you do feel that if there are a couple of bad results or Yamaha mess up something with the configuration of the bike, then it could be it could be tough um, for him to stay consistent. But um, I, I guess that's uh, 
that's a sort of unknown, isn't it? I mean, he's still just 22 years old. He's so young. Um, I, I, I can't really say now or not whether he's going to be a, a kind of fitting world champion. Um, going off last year's evidence, yeah, sure. But then, you know, there's evidence in 2020 that when things aren't all exactly perfect, that uh, it's not uh, it's not great. But I do think that Fabio showed a willingness to work on his own weaknesses, uh, you know, in the, the last preseason that we had. Um, and he, he, in many ways, looked kind of like the complete performer last year. So I'm not sure if, um, you know, we'll be we'll be seeing a kind of return to the, maybe the petulance that was uh, evident in 2020. Um, I think he does seem to have matured from then. So um, tough to say, um, but I think, you know, he'll be, he'll be one of the guys, yeah. I mean, it was interesting to see Quattararo, as soon as he won the championship, he seemed to go to pieces. You know, he had two modest races really after that. He didn't really uh, dominate in the same way that he had uh, previously. And that calmness, being able to maintain that calmness was very, very impressive, you know, throughout the entire season. And I think uh, we were talking about earlier contracts. Um, there's lots of rumours about uh, Quattararo having asked for obscene amounts of money from uh, Yamaha and talking to Honda and all sorts of other bits, uh, bits and bobs. Um, you have to wonder how much that is going to be a distraction, especially if he suddenly decides that he's unhappy because he's not getting the, uh, you know, the, the Yamaha aren't building the bike that he wants. He's not getting the speed that he's asking for. If he is feeling that Yamaha is shortchanging him, not so much sort of literally in the term in terms of financially, but not giving him what he wants. Um, and especially if, say, Franco Morbidelli is, is suddenly has a really, really good um, sort of few races, is competitive, Yamaha start paying a lot of attention to him. Uh, riders tend to get very jealous. They tend to get they are uh, they're prepared to be loyal they're pre as long as they feel, feel that they're being completely supported uh, and you saw it last year with Vinales who went, you know basically went to pieces because he didn't feel the Yamaha was supporting him rightly or wrongly i mean you, you could make a case that that he had every right to feel that way um but yeah if if Quattararo starts to feel that Yamaha aren't giving the support that he feels he deserves, uh, then you have to start about. Then you have to start to think about how that will affect his, um, how that will affect his mental state. I do think that if he is, if we see the same Fabio Quattararo as we saw in the first half of uh, last year, then uh, I think he is an absolute serious contender also he if you think about 2019 he went up against uh, Mark Marquez a number of times and only just came up short and he went up uh, against a fully fit or you know pretty well fully fit Mark Marquez in his absolute prime so uh, that I, that experience will definitely just stand him in good stead and he's a better rider since then so if we're going to see the Quattararo from the first half of last year Dave does that mean he's going to be riding around more races with his leathers unzipped I think he needs to work a bit more on that, his man rug if that's the case. That and that an arm pump. Yeah, arm rug, arm uh, chest rugs are so uh, so 1970s. Uh, you know, that, it's it's all very uh, Don't uh, underestimate the chest rug. <laughs> Especially for warmth in the winter months. Exactly. Yes, um, exactly. 
I mean, Quattarara is going to be brilliant again. I mean, you'd think, like Neil said, still so young. He's still very much on the development path. But for me, um, <clears throat> one name that really stands out from the list is Juan Mir. Um, I think he's a rider that's just got better and better and better every year. Of course, you know, it could be a very, very important season in terms of what he can do with Suzuki and what Suzuki could do for him, um, how the Suzuki staff and leadership and management structure are going to be. But, uh, you know, I like Mir's chances. I think, you know, he was made to fight more than he's ever fought before for results in 2021. So that's only going to bear him in good stead. Guys, we're going to sign off on this podcast. I'm going to ask you a very crucial, I keep using that word, uh, a very pivotal question perhaps that's going to take up your attention and and some of your um, desire, let's say, in the coming weeks. Which team launch and which motorcycle are you looking forward to seeing the most? Repsol Honda. <laughs> Can I say Repsol Honda as well? Just for no just... cynicism on this show, no, none at all. <laughs> um, look, uh, team and bike launches are absolute nonsense and uh, utterly meaningless. I am uh, very much looking forward to going to Sepang, and I believe we will be allowed into pit lane. So I will be uh, cruising up and down there, trying to spot all of the details and, and getting punched in the face by uh, various uh, uh, mechanics and team bosses. Well, there's a, you know, we, Dave, you're a, you're a treasured and valued member of the Paddock Pass podcast, but to any press officers that are listening, you know, um, if David is going to be booted off any kind of potential press launches for teams or whatever else, or those key media events, then uh, of course he's working very much for himself on his own website. Uh, <laughs> Neil, um, for me, it's going to be the Ducatis. I mean, they always seem to, for what is essentially just a red motorcycle, they always seem to be quite curvy and rather sensuous. So I think, um, you know, I'll be looking forward to seeing what the uh, the designers of Bologna have managed to magic up for for this season. But is there any kind of livery that you're um, apart from you know the blue and uh, the orange white mix of Repsol Honda? It's all about the curves, isn't it, Ed? And I say that as a man that's returned from uh, a winter's worth of eating in Northern Ireland uh, with a few <laughs> a few fresh curves on my own uh, body. Um, yeah, I would say like uh, the, the team launch thing. It seems that um, maybe one or two teams are maybe putting less. Uh, emphasis on these presentations now than they, they did a few years ago. I think uh, there's maybe three teams that are going to be doing their launch just at Sepang before the first test. Um, it used to be that you would go to some really fancy, glitzy location, um, maybe up some uh, snowy mountain and uh, have all of your expenses paid and get rather drunk um, with a five-star meal put in front of you before you then went on to interview the riders. But um, is, it, is it really something that gets the the blood pumping i'm not sure that i'm really massively excited about any team launch i, I hope i don't sound too curmudgeonly or or sort of uh, disassociated with uh, with the whole thing but it's it's not something in general i think that i'm really riled up for maybe in a in a year when there's a, a huge rider swap you know when lorenzo went to ducati for example that was and that was our first chance to to speak to him um in ducati colors that was that was worth going to obviously but um this year, I don't think there's anything really. We spoke to Marquez today. That was the big mystery. Um, sorry, we spoke to Marquez last week. Um, so, yes, there's nothing that's uh, catching my eye at this time. He's such a degenerate. I mean, really, he's so uh, a man who used to the lap of luxury. He is not interested in a launch <laughs> unless he's in a five-star resort and being wined and dined. Honestly, I actually have to say, also, I missed out on the uh, on the Ducati, uh, the the, the Marlboro launches. I was never um, I was never important enough there during that period. Uh, the first one I got to was, I think, 2013, which was uh, at Munich in the uh, in the Audi factory. That was that was actually really really. 
interesting. It's really, really good. Um, but apart from that, you know, I've had to pay my own way. I haven't been wined and dined and stuck uh, halfway up a Swiss uh, or, or an Italian ski slope. Well, in terms of, um, you know, apathy, uh, boredom, cynicism, and of course, curves, uh, this is three middle-aged men signing off from uh, the Paddock Pass podcast and the second edition of the year. Uh, we'll be back with you next week on a slightly different show, as we mentioned before. Find us on all the usual channels where you get the show. And if you have any feedback, then um, just feel free to drop us a message on Twitter. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Oh, ah, shit, hang on. Uh, uh, record, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That was just for you, Jensen. <laughs> Baby. Sound check. Sound check. <laughs>